Attention, you're listening to the Todd Huff Radio Show, America's home for conservative, not bitter talk radio. Be advised that the content of this program has been documented to prevent and even cure liberalism, and listening may cause you to lean to the right. Here's your conservative, but not bitter host, Todd Huff. That is right, my friends. Here you are tuned in to America's Home for Conservative Not Bitter Talk, and you made a wonderful, absolutely wonderful decision to be joining us today. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for deciding to join us here. Email, by the way, Todd at ToddHuffShow.com. Questions, thoughts, feedback, you know the... The drill, if you've listened for a while, if you're new to the program, I just ask that you make it count. If you're going to reach out to the one and only host of this program, you better make it count. And of course, most of you do, but sometimes there are exceptions to that rule. So I want to talk today, excuse me, I want to talk today about the confirmation process with Katanji Brown Jackson. Now, you know, of course, that Katanji Brown-Jackson was nominated to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court that is being created by the departure, the retirement of Stephen Breyer. Stephen Breyer was appointed by Clinton, I believe, Democrat appointee, and he's now retiring. So Biden is currently president of the United States. Of course, he has the responsibility of making a nomination, and the U.S. Senate serves in the role of advice and consent. Advice and consent regarding Supreme Court nominees. And before the Senate Judiciary Committee right now, Katanji Brown-Jackson is answering questions, going through the process, and, you know, the I think the most... We'll go through some of the answers and some of the things that are happening in these hearings. And I want to talk. I want to be fair here. There are legitimate concerns. And I think there's other things that are not um, necessarily a concern. I think there's legitimate concerns, and I want to stay focused on that. I look, I want to be consistent. I want to be <laughs> consistent. If this was a Republican nominee, I think I would think about it the same way that I do if it's a liberal, radical leftist nominee. There's, of course, other considerations based upon what that means ideologically and how different groups view the role of the Supreme Court, which, of course, matter. But I just want to I want to get there today. I want to touch on some different things. And I want to start by asking the question, will, will she be confirmed? Now, this might surprise you. Maybe it doesn't. <clears throat> Breitbart posted a article yesterday citing a survey conduct, uh, conducted by Gallup. Um, but, 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 is that right? Is it Gallup? It says Gallup here. Only 47% of voters believe President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson, should be confirmed. A Tuesday... No, there's another poll cited in the article going back... Uh, well... 
just that there was another poll. So th- this was a Politico morning consult poll. So 47% of voters, half of voters. Now, what does that really mean? At this particular point, that just means that essentially, in my, esti- my, my estimation, my interpretation, that just means those are primarily, I would say, Democrats or these are people who think, hey, elections have consequences. The president gets to appoint someone to the Supreme Court. That's his job, and this is his nominee, so there you go, right? I mean, that's, that's how a lot of people look at this. I think, I think it, always, it shouldn't be a rubber stamp. No matter who is making the nomination or who is actually receiving the nomination, the Senate should do its part here. And its part is to, again, give advice, advise the president on who might get confirmed, and then to ultimately give their consent if consent is warranted. So about less than half of Americans, and that's important. That's important to note because, because if you go back into history, it's usually a higher percentage that's prepared to be uh, to to say let's confirm a Supreme Court justice nominee. So she's below the fifty percent threshold. Of course, the hearings have just been going on here for a couple of days. But nonetheless, this is of all the things the Senate does, this is an opportunity for the Senate to kind of be in the limelight. And I will say this because. The Republicans do not approach a nomination from the the president of a of the opposing political party. They don't approach it the same way as the radical left does, or we would. This would be a complete circus at this point. There's been moments of, uh, I, I think, every. I've not seen the whole. Obviously, the whole. Every bit of every hearing. We have things that we do here in the day. I, I don't commit to watching all of that. But there's been moments of a little bit of intense questioning, but it's not been out of bounds. It certainly was not the shenanigan or the crazy nonsense that happened with, with Brett Kavanaugh or even going back into history with the nomination of Clarence Thomas back in 1991, which he framed or he branded as a high-tech lynching. That's what he called it, given what he was subjected to by the Senate Judiciary Committee, who, of course, um, was one of the individuals on that committee, was current president, Joseph R. Biden. And for folks, by the way, for folks who think Biden is just this, you know, harmless, uh, somewhat amusing forgetful, sometimes utterly clueless, grandfatherly figure. I just encourage you to go back. Go back and to watch some of the videos of Joseph Biden back in the 80s, back in the 90s, back even into the early 2000s, back when he was saying things like, you can't walk into a 7-Eleven without a slight Indian accent. I'm not kidding, is how he... Just some of these sound bites. And that reminds me of Stand Up Chuck. Stand Up Chuck was just a complete shutdown of the brain. 
um, a gaff of magnif- uh, well, incredible proportions. But you know, you look at some of the things he said, and not just the gaffes, not just the silly things, but literally the things that I think indicate a lot of problems with this guy for a long time. Of course, he's been in D.C. for half a century, and that's uh, largely water under the bridge. I don't know how anyone can be in D.C. for half a century and maintain. I just it would it would take a lot to maintain integrity, I think, over the course of 50 years. But anyway, let's get back to this nomination process. So, Katanji Brown-Jackson, of course, is the is the nominee. And so what's supposed to happen here? Let's just kind of touch on what should be happening here. What should be happening here is that the Senate Judiciary Committee should be asking this candidate about judicial philosophy. And I say should be. I'm not suggesting it's not. There are some other things going on here that I do want to at least point out. But she should have to answer, explain her judicial philosophy. She used another word that I read that is escaping me at the moment in place of judicial philosophy. And maybe I'll it'll come to me or I'll see it during the break. But so those are fair questions, right? It's fair questions for senators to ask the candidate about rulings, decisions, opinions, writings, the mindset of being a Supreme Court justice. These things, it turns out, matter tremendously in this country. And I think perhaps most importantly, the thing that the Senate should be most, I think, focused on is ascertaining if this nominee is going to be a judicial activist. And we've been through this several times on this program, but it's, again, it's worth noting here. The Supreme Court nomination, any Supreme Court nomination, while the process of the appointment is political, the position should not be political. And look, I get to a certain extent, politics is the result of our worldview. Worldview, of course, is how we see and interpret things. So in one respect, that's an unavoidable reality, that there is going to be politics in this. But if a Supreme Court justice really does his job or her job, we don't even necessarily need to know. We don't need to know the political ideology of the person interpreting and applying the law because, and I think Kavanaugh, one of the, Trump appointees said this. I think it was Kavanaugh. It could have been Gorsuch. They, he said, I know it wasn't Amy Coney Barrett, but I think it was Kavanaugh who said, if you don't make some decisions that go against your personal political beliefs, ideology, whatever, then you're probably not doing your job as a Supreme, well, any any, any judge, because the judge's job is to take the case at hand, look at the law, look at the Constitution, and piece that together and say, this is permitted under law, this is not permitted under law, send it back to Congress and say, hey, I'm getting, th- there's mixed messages from the Constitution and the law, you need to fix this, you need to you know, do something so that it clears this particular matter up for the future. That's how this is supposed to work. What it What is not supposed to happen is that someone is nominated to the court, sits in his or her 
uh, you know, on the bench in his or her chair there. And actually, they just say, you know what? I think personally that abortion should be legal or illegal or that guns should be allowed here or they shouldn't be allowed here. Whatever the position, they shouldn't just make it up out of whole cloth based upon their own preference and beliefs. That is the purpose of politics. That part of the debate needs to be held in the political sphere. Their job, the Supreme Court's job, is to interpret these things as written by the ones who wrote the law, the statutes, or and or by the founders, the framers, the ones who wrote the actual Constitution. And they're supposed to interpret it, dare I say, as those who wrote the law and the Constitution intended it originally to be interpreted. That's their job, as best they can come to that. And there's going to be times. There's going to be times when fair-minded people will come to different conclusions. That is just the nature of it. But then there are times, there are times when somebody just says, I don't like it this way. I've already referenced, I think it was Breyer. I'm almost certain it was Breyer. He's on record of basically saying that foreign law can be cited. Now, what does foreign law have to do with American law, with the U.S. Constitution? Maybe something, maybe nothing. It's not the job of a justice to arbitrarily start injecting these other ideas and, you know, other laws. I've jokingly said on here before, we're half a step at that point from citing Harry Potter novels as a basis for an interpretation of a statute and or the Constitution. And so that's what we don't want. And that is really, I believe, the main job of those in the U.S. Senate now is to determine it's not just what her personal political opinions are. That that could matter, right? It could matter depending upon her judicial philosophy. If she views herself, I mean, you know, the only criteria Biden gave us for this particular nominee was that it was going, this nominee was going to be a black woman. That was it. Just the same, the same criteria he gave us for his vice president. And we have seen how that is an utter disaster. Again, it has nothing, it has nothing to do with those two things, race and gender. It has to do with the individual. It has to do with her inability to be coherent in front of a microphone, in front of an audience. I mean, there's some clips on Kamala that I think in some ways would give Joe Biden a run for his money. Biden's probably saying, what in the world were you talking about, Kamala? If if Biden says that to you, it has to be so far, so far out of the realm of remotely sensible. It has to be so obviously wacky or just stumbling and bumbling all over the place. She made comments the other day about um, the passage of time. I, I, I'm not going to play it, but she said the passage of time about four times in 11 seconds. I didn't even know you could say that phrase that many times in that short of a period of time. So there, it turns out that it matters not the race and gender. What matters are the qualifications. And every race and gender has people that are qualified for the position. The race and gender should not be the primary thing that are held up as to say this person is qualified because the Supreme Court is not even a – it's not intended to be representative of 
the people. It's supposed to be a group. It's supposed to be the branch of government that interprets the law, and the law is supposed to be written by people who represent people in the United States of America, their constituents. That's how it's supposed to work, but we flipped it. It's like we've we've totally flipped it. Legislators don't want to actually pass laws. They want to kick the can oftentimes to the Supreme Court because legislators will be held accountable at the polls. Supreme Court justices often have no consequence whatsoever of just making up something on the spot and saying, this is how it's going to be. This is my ruling. What are you going to do about it? Because Congress, the likelihood that I don't, the likelihood they're going to impeach a Supreme Court justice is virtually zero. I guess if it got really crazy, that could happen. You've remember with Kavanaugh that was was discussed and talked about and so forth. But anyway, that's the most important thing that needs to be done in this in these hearings is to determine if this person, this nominee, is going to be someone who tries to push her political ideology. And I would say this, it doesn't matter what her ideology is. It needs to be taken out of the equation. She needs to prove that she can do that. She needs to demonstrate that her personal beliefs, her personal preferences, her personal ideas, her personal worldview, ideology, and all this stuff cannot affect as much as is reasonable and fair and understandable and as possible for a human being to do, she should interpret the law. And that's what we should be focused on here. And there's a couple of other things going on during this process because the Senate knows that everybody's watching the Senate during this process. And so there is some you know, some campaigning, I think, going on. And I think to a certain extent that's both necessary and and even important. And we'll get to those things in due course as the program comes together. But I'm out of time here. First segment, quick, tech, uh, quick time out, my friends. Back here in just a minute. Welcome back, my friends. By the way, program brought to you in part by a good friend of mine. It's actually TJ Freegy. Freegy and Freegy Auctions and Marketing. They have their... See, they got a couple of auctions coming up. They've got one starting on the 25th, the 25th, 8 a.m. on their campus in Clayton, which is just a little bit west of Indianapolis down US 40, Spring Midwest Construction, Transportation, and Turf Auction. Spring Midwest Construction, Transportation, and turf auction um, on the 25th. For more, you can go to their website. You can see that auction, information about that off, uh, auction, some of the items that are going to be in that auction, as well as some of the others coming up. They got the big boy, annual big boy to, uh, toy auction, which is one of my, I love talking about that one. It just sounds perfect. It's a perfectly named auction. Freegeauctioneers.com, F-R-E-I-J-E auctioneers with an s.com freegeauctioneers.com and it a lot of these you have to look at the particular auction but um, a lot of these are available online so you can be anywhere in the country for a lot of these just make sure you check out which ones are online so no matter where you're hearing my voice maybe something that is worth checking out freegeauctioneers.com so let's get back here to this purpose of the Supreme Court, uh, well, the, the Senate, and what they're trying to do here, what should be 
what should be happening. I think it's worth pointing out that in a world where integrity actually reigns supreme, which of course I know is not the world that we live in, but it's the one that we should, I think, aspire to, in a world where integrity mattered, um, it really wouldn't matter the political ideology. I'm not saying it does not matter. Do not misunderstand me. I'm saying it shouldn't matter if a person is truly qualified because if they're qualified, they will interpret the law even as Kavanaugh said, even if it goes against their personal beliefs. That's part of being a judge, part of being a Supreme Court justice. And unfortunately, judicial activism is a real thing and a real problem. That's when someone, often a, often a radical leftist from the bench, decides to make something up and then declare it to be the law of the land. This is what happened effectively with abortion. This is what happened effectively with same-sex marriage. And regardless your political viewpoints on those particular issues – they bypassed. They bypassed the political process, and they found somewhere, somehow tucked away in the Constitution, probably had one of Chuck Schumer's interns looking into this. They have ways of finding all sorts of tricks on how to pass an, un, an unbelievable number of reconciliation bills. It only needs a simple... Majority to pass the Senate instead of a filibuster-proof majority. So they're probably looking into this, and they've found in some nook or cranny in the Constitution some words that protect certain rights that really aren't there, right? That's that's what happens. And this is the same court, by the way, that doesn't see the Second Amendment, but yet they find these other things. In fact, I saw a, a story, an editorial CNN.com. Yes, I go there. I check out CNN, so you don't have to do that. In fact, I would advise extra caution when I when I quote the name or say the name of the individual that wrote this. Um, you can be doubly thankful that I'm looking into this and not you, because heaven only knows what's going on um, over at CNN, in particular with with this fella. And if you don't know, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to put these images in your mind, but this is written by Jeffrey Tubin of CNN. He actually has a piece at CNN.com um, basically saying this nomination process is a victory for conservatives, which I think it's a victory for the Constitution because of some of the things that Katanji Brown-Jackson has basically admitted to or, or stated now. You can say you don't believe her. I think that that's a fair thing, especially, and we'll get to the ide- her ideology and where she stands politically in a moment. But I think she's at least learned what the popular and accepted role of a Supreme Court justice is for the United States Supreme Court. And I've already laid that out for you so brilliantly in the last segment. But... She's she's saying things that sound like, and I'm not saying it's actually true. That's why they've got to press and they've got to, you know, ask her about things. Josh Hawley's been doing this. Uh, Ted Cruz has been doing this. Marsha Blackburn has been doing this. I think Lindsey Graham has been trying to do this. I, 
you know, and, and there's political posturing going on. And I think that has to be acknowledged as well. This is a political campaign year. You know, this is, there's some political, at least some temptations for some grandstanding and probably some, some cases that we could all, that we could all cite as well. It's not just about 2022. This may be about 2024 for some folks as well. And I don't, again, I'm not trying to get, you know, picking at these guys. I'm just saying that these are all, that this is all what's going on. Uh, that This is how they're maneuvering. And it matters because they know that people are paying attention to the Senate. So Batubin here writes a piece that says uh, Katanji Brown Jackson has actually talked about, uh, spoken about and acknowledged the limited role of the judiciary, right? She talks about, he says, her desire to, quote, stay in her lane, meaning to stay within the role of what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. She talks about the text she rejects, supposedly. I mean, this is this is the position. This is how it's being framed. The belief that the Constitution is a living, breathing document. It is not a living, breathing document. The only document like that, and I wouldn't call it a document, is the, is the Bible. But this living Constitution idea is something that the left throws out there to justify to justify their judicial activism. She's not taken that course with her answers, at least so far. Now, just because she's said those things and just because she's echoed, remember I said earlier she used a phrase that wasn't philosophy. It was rather, I couldn't think of the term, it was methodology. Methodology instead of a judicial philosophy. And so she's talking about the role of the courts, the role of the you know, legislature staying in her lane, following the text. The Constitution's not a living, breathing document. So Tubin's out there saying, you know, this is a victory for conservatives because she's sounding like what a conservative justice would sound like. Someone who actually, forget about conservative or liberal, someone who's dedicated to really fulfilling the role of, of the Supreme Court justice without inserting his or her own political opinion. So if words are all that are to be trusted, and I'm not suggesting they are, he, she's at least saying things that would be right from a conservative perspective. Don't misunderstand me and think that I'm saying that there's nothing else to be concerned with and that there, this is no big deal and this is a rubber stamp or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying, and referencing Tubin's article here about said another word by oh boy but anyway um tubin's tubin's editorial here um basically points out that i think conservatives have have won the argument as to what a supreme court justice is supposed to be and that that's an important thing now we just have to make sure that this is really what this nominee believes in reality what the evidence, what the record suggests. And there's some things that have been brought up that I think need to be discussed, and there's some legitimate concerns. So what she's said in many instances, and I'm not, I don't want to gloss over, I'm going to say some of these, uh, say some of these things that should concern us after the break, but she's largely sounded like someone who at least understands what Americans expect and what the well, what Americans expect a Supreme Court justice to do, which is interpret the law, don't create it, stay in your lane, don't pretend like the Constitution's this 
living organism. I mean, it's crazy for the radical left to say this. They, The same group that doesn't believe that a fetus is alive believes that this parchment is a living, breathing constitution. I know it's metaphorical, but they wouldn't even dream of using the metaphor about life um, regarding an embryo or fetus. That's not at all what, where they want that conversation to go. So tell you some things that we should be concerned with about this nominee on the other side of the breaks at type. My friends we will do that in due course when we get back. Welcome back, my friends. So what should we be concerned about? Because there's a lot of things that we need to be concerned about with this particular nominee. And I think perhaps the most important thing, the most important thing is what Marsha Blackburn pointed out. Um, now, l- let me let me highlight some of the things that have been pointed out here by senators so far. Ted Cruz questioned her, Katanji Brown-Jackson, on critical race theory being taught in a D.C. school where she sits on the board of directors. She says she doesn't know anything about that and that the board is not responsible for the curriculum. That seems a little odd to me, but maybe it's a fundraising board. I, I don't know. I, I, I really want to be, be fair here. But to Ted Cruz's larger point, if you are a social justice warrior, if you are a big believer in CRT, it is very fair. This Folks with that particular worldview and perspective, many times – Many times. In fact, I would say typically follow the line of thinking that says whatever I have to do is justified here. Whatever I have to do to get a political victory is justified here. Whatever I have to do to see critical race theory – and this isn't me, by the way, if you're just tuning in to hear me say that. But people who endorse critical race theory openly think this is some great important thing that needs to be taught. Um, they oftentimes are of the opinion that the ends do justify the means. No matter what means they take, the ends of having critical race theory being taught or pushed on students without parental consent in America, they view as a as a victory. So that's I can't say that's a hundred percent, but that's a very common perspective. And so he's questioning her about that and pressing on that holding up a children's book. Um, I think that's called Anti-Racist or some such thing. And she, it's important. It's important to at least be mindful of that. Um, Josh Hawley has pressed her a little bit on her sentencing, uh, in particular sentencing for uh, child pornography cases. And she's got she's got some things that she said that are, are problematic. Andrew McCarthy, by the way, who I have a ton of respect for at National Review, actually says that Hawley is um, is over-exaggerating this. He doesn't come out and directly say it from what I um, from what I could pick up in the article that I read of his, but he almost seems to say this is Hawley pressing something for maybe political purposes. And again, there is that pressure there, and I'm not making the, the claim. I'm just trying to say that there is certainly some things about the sentencing that she's done for child pornography, uh, folks that have been uh, 
you know, found guilty or pled guilty to these charges. Um, and some of the things that she said during sentencing, I've got a soundbite here. I just don't have time if I have time to play it today. But basically, uh, she she said that she felt sorry for one of the the victims, and she made some comments that suggested um, that she didn't necessarily think that every person who was found guilty of child uh, pornography was actually a pedophile. I mean, I'm, I'm there's context there that I can't necessarily get into right here on the mo- at the spot, but. There's that is a relative or a relevant thing to understand and, and be aware of. You know, is she is she overly sympathetic to that group of people? Um, is she going to, you know, not interpret the law as it's written because of that sympathy? Again, Andrew McCarthy thinks that that's not really what's happened here. But I again, I'm just sharing with you some of the things that have come out. In the hearing, but I think what Marsha Blackburn was discussing, I actually think is the most important thing in this whole thing. Not to say that those other two points that they need to be evaluated and considered, and Republicans need to think about those matters and ultimately ask themselves: Is this person, is this nominee, going to be pushing critical race theory on American youth? I think it's it's a it's a fair question at least to think about and ask given her political ideology, the side that she politically aligns with, and all the ways that they try to keep that below the radar. We had an interview last week that exposed that that very thing in Indianapolis public school system. So fair questions, but I think Marsha Blackburn actually hits the nail on the head as to what we need to be most concerned with. We'll talk about that. When we get back, my friends, sit back. You're listening to Conservative Not Better Talk. I'm your host, Todd Huff, back in mere moments. Welcome back, my friends. So what is the biggest concern that I think we should have with Katanji Brown-Jackson? And I think it's what Marsha Blackburn alluded to. She's gotten, she's gotten a lot of pushback from the media on this, which may suggest that this is at least getting close to something that they are maybe concerned with. But she wrote a college thesis. Now, again, look, I know these these things do, these do matter. This was her academic career that, of course, um, was a thesis about law. So it certainly matters. This is not the same thing as going back to high school um, – as folks did with with Kavanaugh and so forth. I don't want to go down that particular road. I just want to say that in her college thesis, and I'm looking here at an article from Breitbart, you'll see this reported in a lot of places. Um, She writes this, there is a chance that the very institution which is designed to dispense justice and to protect individual rights could be the most guilty of creating injustices in its effort to make criminal adjudication economical and efficient. This thesis will examine guilty plea negotiations in modern criminal courts in the United States and will argue that, as they currently operate, plea bargaining processes, processes, if you will, are both coercive and unacceptable. She then goes on to talk about the motivation. So basically what that means is the court – the judicial system in general 
maybe she's suggesting um, doing anything but creating justice because of the way by which guilty plea negotiations are negotiated in modern criminal courts. And she says they're coercive and unacceptable. All that, I mean, look, you can make arguments like that. I, I get all that. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. But the part that matters here is she references the motivations of judges, which she refers to as hidden agendas. Hidden agendas. And then she goes on to say that these hidden agendas um, underlie the attempts to, quote, get the accused to waive their constitutional rights through the plea bargain, right? So that's what she's arguing. And so the pushback here is, do you have any hidden agendas? I mean, the way you described the court, I mean, were you writing this as a as a neutral observer? Are you telling us how it works? And now you are part of that system? Is this how you think? These are fair questions without being, I mean, without being unnecessarily provocative or anything, fair questions. Because again, this goes right to the heart of the most important thing that cannot happen with a Supreme Court justice, a Supreme Court justice who is appointed for life. There's nothing we can do. I mean, again, impeaching a Supreme Court justice is virtually impossible and it's, it's you know unheard of. But there's really not a whole lot you can do about this. You're at the mercy of when they decide to effectively retire. So that matters if there's a hidden agenda because a hidden agenda should not be the motive of a Supreme Court, of any person in a position of, of being a judge. What should matter is what the law says, what the Constitution says, what the facts of the case are, and you apply that to the best of your ability as we laid out in the earlier segments here, apply that. Apply that fairly without bias, without trying to do anything other than just deal with the case at hand. Not do anything socially, just what are the facts? What do they say? Where is the evidence? What does the law say? What does the Constitution say? And then you do that thing. So there you go, friends. Quick time out. Back in just a minute. So, just got not much time left at all here, but what should the Republicans do? The Republicans, if they truly believe, and look, I understand, again, election year, politics, all that stuff. I, I, If they believe that she is going to be a judicial activist, they should, they should vote against her. That, to me, is, is the simple answer. I think that there's a good chance that – all Republicans, who knows about Romney and Collins, but there's a good chance that this could be a close vote. But again, Democrats have the majority technically here, so we'll keep you posted. I've got to go out of time here, folks. SDG, see you tomorrow. Take care.